0: Hello, and welcome to Polylog, a weekly dialogue on the substance and style of the Sunday morning political shows, where we take a critical look at the policymaker, the politician, and the journalist, because each is critical and each demands criticism. I'm Brendan Steidel, your co-host and communications specialist in government, technology, and healthcare.
1: And I'm Naomi Soto, your other co-host and health policy professional based in California. Our goal for Polylogs: Look at all sides of the Sunday morning political shows.
0: We discuss guest performances, the style and quality of questions by the hosts, and the overall usefulness of roundtable discussions.
1: Polylog is our attempt to find praise and demand constructive political dialogue.
0: Today is Sunday, December twenty-sixth, twenty twenty-one. Hope everyone had a great Christmas if they were celebrating. We were.
1: We were. It was our daughter's. Not her first Christmas, but the first participatory.
0: Yeah. Christmas. So that was fun. Yeah. She was just four months old last time.
1: Yeah. Fun slash exhausting slash lot slash adorable.
0: Very adorable. Hopefully you all had something similar. But we were back to it here on Sunday, taking a look at the shows. So today, to make it a little different, because the shows themselves were a little different. Yeah, they all had kind of a little various spit on it they all went off in different directions which they often do around the holidays yes so we're just going to skip quality questionable and we are going to talk about what was noteworthy we're going to hit the highlights in each of the shows we took a look at so which shows did you look at
1: highlights is in things that are worth discussing
0: exactly not all good things
1: (laughs) holiday or not we are true to ourselves (laughs) Uh (laughs) are not all compliments
0: so what shows did you look at today so
1: I looked at meet the press which was hosted by Chuck Todd he did like a special piece on education and race and critical race theory and and the first half of the show was actually an episode of meet the press reports which is on Peacock Network that's easy kind of like a preview of that other show and then I also looked at this week which was hosted by Jonathan Carl which was kind of normalish actually And you, Brendan?
0: I took a look at Fox News Sunday, Face the Nation, and State of the Union, and we'll get into the depths of that, I guess, right now, as we'll begin, and I guess I'll start us off on at least doing one of my shows, then maybe we'll go back and forth. Do it. So, Fox News Sunday was hosted by Mike Emanuel, who we've seen host in the chair to fill in for Chris Wallace. Now he's filling in for Chris Wallace's permanent vacancy from the show, as... We're seeing other hosts across the Fox networks do. But today, I think he did a pretty darn good job in a lot of different ways. To start it off, he began with a discussion with Dr. Ashish Jha, who is the dean of Brown University's School of Public Health. He's been on Fox News Sunday several times. And in today's discussion, there was kind of a bit of a Some kind of newsy things, but also a little bit of look back that we always appreciate when it comes to public health. And a piece of the news on COVID that I think should be breaking through to the Sunday shows more is the state of our schools. Take a listen.
2: Earlier this week, President Biden had this to say about children
3: in school.
0: COVID-19 is scary, but the science
3: is clear. Children are as as safe in schools as they are any place. Assuming the appropriate precautions have been taken. The CDC is promoting its
2: strategy, Test to Stay. Still more than 800 schools across the U.S. unexpectedly closed this week, according to Burbio, with more than 500 schools closed in the first week of January. Dr. Jha, are we headed for full-scale remote learning? And as a public health matter, who is right in this debate? Close versus stay open.
4: Yeah, this is really unfortunate, Mike. You know, here we are almost two years into the pandemic. We know how to keep schools open. We know how to keep them safe. Uh, This really shouldn't even be on the table. And I'm disappointed to see this is happening. We know that for kids, being in school is the right thing for them, for their mental health, for their education. And we have all sorts of tools to keep schools open.
0: So this is a really important point that should be, as we said, getting more attention on the sunday shows and and in our political conversation overall you know hearing it here for the second time i do think it's important to note that schools aren't necessarily closing to keep the kids safe sometimes they're closing because the teachers have covid or omicron and they just can't get enough staffing at the school to stay open that's happening in a lot of different industries in a lot of different ways right now in the height of this surge but I think the commentary that we're hearing here is related to preemptively or or, or closing because of fear of COVID spreading within the schools among the students.
1: Right, and I think what, I I didn't look at Fox News Sunday, but what I hope is included in this conversation, and if it's not, then that's an issue, is the state of testing is pretty abysmal. So assuming the test to stay policy is kind of the, standard policy of a school district that can be really challenging for school districts that don't have the resources to pay for these tests let alone putting that burden on parents and something that's been missing is the whole conversation around just like school infrastructure itself around like ventilation and airflow and overcrowding and things like that which for a lot of urban schools is really hard like really super hard and so i don't disagree But I do think we should be having a deeper conversation about schools and how they should stay safe if we want to have the assumption that schools will stay safe.
0: Yeah. Speaking of assumptions, going back to that original quote we just heard from Joe Biden at the beginning where he says, children are as safe in schools as they are any place, assuming the appropriate precautions have been taken. It's like, well, that's that's a a huge assumption. It's like, assuming everything goes perfectly, I think it's going to go all right. You know what I mean? It's like, well...
1: Assuming you're not like a poor kid from the Bronx, you should be fine.
0: (laughs) Yeah. The other thing that was noteworthy in this conversation was an extremely, extremely important reminder of why Americans are extra vulnerable to Omicron because they don't have enough boosters. And if you look at the graphs of places like America versus Europe versus Israel We have extremely low uptake of the boosters and they kind of got a little bit to the reason why in this discussion.
2: Doctor, the White House had wanted to make booster shots available to all adults eight months past their initial vaccine series beginning in September, but federal regulators and some outside scientists said there wasn't enough data to support that wide of an authorization. You even went through your own evolution in thinking on this recommendation. In the end, it was four months before all adults were eligible In light of this, did we miss crucial time in getting in front of Omicron, and did the bureaucracy blow it?
4: I do think we missed critical time, and I do think the bureaucracy slowed us down. Look, my evolution on this was uh, around late July, early August, I started seeing pretty compelling data uh, that people needed that third shot. And so when the president came out August 18th, I think, and said every adult should get one, I agreed with him. And then I think we spent three months fighting and, and going through a bureaucratic process. It slowed us down, and it's one of the reasons why so few Americans have gotten a booster, particularly high-risk people who absolutely need it.
0: Yeah, this was clearly a huge, huge fumble by the public health infrastructure of this country. And we should have more and more questions about it. And people should be saying, what are you going to do to change it? What are you going to do to stop this from happening again? Because you were late on the booster. You are late on the testing that we need for Omicron. What is going on with our public health leadership here within this country? And what is the Biden administration doing to make sure it doesn't keep making the same slow walking mistakes again and again and again and again on these things
1: yeah and that's not even considering israel is now i think requiring a fourth shot or they're in the early stages of planning for that requirement. yeah i know they're
0: talking about a fourth shot yes
1: yeah <laughs> we're constantly months behind in terms of what our priority and energy and
0: messaging should be so
1: get it together that would be great
0: later on the episode Emmanuel spoke with Ben Cardin, Democratic senator from the state of Maryland. And this was actually really interesting to hear a Democratic senator speaking in the language of current kind of Democratic leadership as they're trying to make things happen with moderates like Joe Manchin in the Senate after Manchin, you know, blew up the Build Back Better plan. Take a listen specifically to this answer, which I thought was really interesting, about the prospects for Build Back Better in the new year. To your
2: point, are Democrats open to scaling it back even more or passing various pieces as standalones, maybe attracting Senator Manchin or even some GOP on some of these issues?
3: Well, that's a strategy decision that's being negotiated. We we are open to a way to, to reach the finish line. We want to make it as comprehensive as possible because the needs are just there. Well, we recognize that families need help uh, on affordability. And that's what this is about, making our economy affordable for families. And it will be fully paid for. That That is very clear. We understand the risks of inflation, and we are committed to making sure that we really offset all expenses.
0: Did you hear what he said? Build Back Better is now about. It's about making things affordable for families. Hmm. That wasn't really everything that Build Back Better was about, was it? Build Back Better had a lot of climate provisions, and I didn't hear a word about climate in this discussion. Climate was a notable sticking point for Joe Manchin in West Virginia. So very interesting there. It was also interesting to hear him talk about the case for reforming the filibuster which is leaning very heavily not towards reforming the Senate to meet our current needs of America, but no, 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 this reform, it's really about looking back. It's about restoring the traditions of the Senate.
2: Senator, you've said in the past you'd be open to eliminating that, but because the votes to do that do not exist, you'd like to see bipartisan buy-in to reforming the rules. What's your position now?
3: Well, Mike, I've been in the Senate for 15 years, and what I would like to see us is return to how the Senate was operating when I first came to the United States Senate, and that is allow issues to come to the floor of the Senate so we can debate. We're supposed to be the greatest debating society uh, institution in the world. Mm -hmm. We need to be able to debate issues, but we also need to make sure that the minority have an opportunity to offer amendments and get votes on their amendments. At the end of the day, we should be voting up or down on legislation. That's what we need to do is to reform the Senate rules so that it acts in its traditional historic sense. We're not doing that today. And I do hope we would have Republicans who would join us in this effort so that the Senate can restore the way that it should be considering legislation.
0: So I want to be honest. You know, there, there is lots of scholarship and history going back to show that, yes, the Senate really is in a state of disarray right now in a way that it wasn't in the past and that, in fact, the filibuster has been abused to an extent that it it never was ever in the past. So yes, if you restored the way the Senate worked before, you could see the Senate return to a period where it could actually get more things passed with fewer votes, you know, closer to the 50 rule and not the 60 rule. However, (laughs) this framing of like, oh, the only way we in America can talk about reforming our institutions is to hearken back to our storied history and traditions rather than actually trying to shape our system of government to meet the current needs of us now in this moment right here is just mind numbingly annoying.
1: I mean, beyond being frustrating in terms of like operational governance (laughs) and the needs that we have, just like what a Boring brain and lack of creativity to think that that is like beyond the realm of possibility.
0: Just like to do something for the needs of now instead of like harking back to our history.
1: Exactly.
0: Yeah. But it is very artful, thoughtful, carefully considered language aimed at changing the mind of one or two people who are steep in that tradition and that past. So, it's very likely effective for the people who need to hear it to change I'm, their Oh, mind. I'm not
1: sh- I'm not saying it's probably not effective. It's yeah. absolutely effective, which is why we haven't changed the filibuster. I'm just saying that's boring. Yeah. <laughs> just like as a philosophy and way of life.
0: Mm-hmm. <laughs> Emmanuel also had some tough questions for Republican Senator Roy Blunt. About why the senator, a Republican, as I just mentioned, is against a tax break, which normally Republicans don't like taxes. But this Republican Party does not like the Biden administration's child tax credit. And Emanuel tried to dig into this in various ways.
2: Senator, one of the casualties of the collapse of that bill is the enhanced child tax credit, which expires at the end of the year. According to the Urban Institute, continuing the benefit could have a significant impact on child poverty, reducing child poverty to about 8.4 percent from 14.2 percent, a fall of roughly 40 percent. Is that a compelling argument to extend it?
5: Well, I think this is this is one of the problems and one of the gimmicks in the bill. Frankly, you know, we doubled the child tax credit in the 2017 tax bill. There's a cap on that credit based on income. Senator Manchin has repeatedly said that one of the problems he has with the bill is that sending uh, money to every family that has children uh, under 18, the families that make every family that makes up to 150,000 and many families that make up to $400,000, if you look at the House plan, mm-hmm. just simply doesn't make sense. You know, Putting a cap uh, on uh, families in need is uh, what we can do, should do, and would do in the country, and I think could do in a bipartisan way. Uh, again, we doubled the child tax credit uh, just a handful of years ago, uh, and we need to look at that if that's no longer meeting the need of moving kids out of poverty. But families that make $150,000, thousand dollars for instance uh, aren't in poverty in missouri i don't think they're in poverty almost anywhere in the united states Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, it's a big mistake to assume they are
1: Brennan, let's move to missouri Mm -hmm. (laughs) quick asap load up the moving truck okay so this is kind of a valid conversation to have where if there's a desire to extend the childcare tax credit, in what capacity could that happen, right? To be able to get more support, including Joe Manchin's. But this idea that $150,000 is the ceiling for affordability in terms of childcare and other costs of, you know, just the cost of children is absolutely crazy. Good for Missouri, good for some parts of the country where maybe that's not an issue. But in many parts of the country, it is absolutely a joke to think that you would not have any issues with cost. And childcare in general, when it is always income based, it is, there are so many middle class families that struggle to provide the basic needs for early childhood.
0: Well, I mean, a few things on this. First of all, good for Emanuel for asking the question and citing Statistics about child poverty. Mm-hmm. Second of all, Blunt's arguments here are are very interesting, right? It, it makes me wonder if Blunt would be making the same argument if we didn't have universal education for children, right? Like, well, why would a, a, a family that makes one hundred and fifty thousand dollars not be able to pay for their kids' education?
1: Yeah, of course they private, can,
0: right? Private schooling, right? Why do the they need public five? schooling? They don't need it, right? You could make that argument for any universal situation. The other thing that strikes me is, first of all, he very much does not address the issue of poverty in his answer. He dismisses the question as a gimmick and then says people making up to, you know, 150,000, you know, that's not poverty. Well okay, but what about all the people under it? And also, the question was about poverty. It wasn't about the people over Mm 150,000, right? So he's not really addressing the question head on there. And then the other thing that occurs to me is one frame that is missing from the conversation when it's only framed as poverty. Now, certainly the poverty reduction qualities of this have been touted by the Democrats as one of the main reasons to continue doing it. But- one thing that's missing in that conversation is about creating pro-family policies that encourage and make it easier for Americans of all ages, backgrounds, and places on the income distribution to have children, to have policies that encourage families of, of you know, large size to exist. Because as we've said again and again on Polylog. There is a coming issue here in America and all Western countries where you have aging populations that are going to need to be supported by a young tax base of workers in a dynamic economy. If people retire at 65 and they live until 80, that's a lot of years that they have to be supported, and we have a lot of support systems built through Social Security, through medicare to support them those systems need to be paid for by somebody and And not to mention we need the workers right exactly (laughs) that's what i mean we need the workers we need young families we need immigrants is another way to do that right right so those are the those are two of the major ways that you can do that and i don't understand how you can be a political party that is against both of those mechanisms so there definitely is an argument here that is missing And I understand it's not just from the Republican side, but it's from the Democratic side and it's from the media side of talking just about pro-family policies being an important thing to do, like it's worthwhile to do it, regardless of income, regardless of poverty issues. If you make it easy for people to have a family, they will have a family. Sure, they could pay for it any other way, but... Maybe they have the money to pay for it, but if they know it's paid for already, they're more likely to use it and not feel like having a family means that they can't do these other things in their lives that they want to do.
1: Right, which is essentially what a lot of people under the age of 45 are considering right now.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. So I wish that was part of the conversation, and this just indicates why it's so important to be a part of the conversation because it would be great to see Blunt and Republicans. And people who are against this bill, including Manchin, explain why they're against that sort of policy, if the conversation could happen on that level. Because this country does a lot for people over 65. It doesn't do a lot for families. It does a lot for people in poverty. You know, there is a lot. There's a lot of focus on poverty. There's a lot of focus on people over 65. But what about families in the middle? Finally, I did want to ding this show a little bit for one pretty blatant omission and that is at the end during the sunday group which typically in past years on fox news sunday was kind of like a bunch of panelists who were asked to give their predictions for the year and we we kind of enjoyed that discussion these panelists were weighted to the right side of the spectrum we had a republican congressman a columnist for the washington post who is not a Democrat. We've already talked about Charles Lane not being a Democrat. Uh, And then we had a White House correspondent from the Wall Street Journal. So the panel was not balanced. But even so, there's no excuse for the panel to so badly miss the mark. For example, take listen to this initial framing of what the panel was going to be about.
2: I want to start by taking stock of the president's first year in office. Catherine, Mr. Biden ran as a deal maker who would renew confidence that government can do big things. But here we are heading into year two with the pandemic ramping up and the government struggling to ensure Americans have key supplies like testing and now therapeutics. And the president is again pressing hard for vaccinations. Give us a sense of his covid scorecard, both on tactics
0: and messaging. All right, so that was a little tricky because he said he wants to take stock of Biden's first year in office, but the question is actually about his COVID scorecard. That said, the panel did try to take stock of Biden's first year in office. Now, we're always annoyed when the shows seem to see the entirety of American politics through the lens of whoever happens to be president at the time, but putting that aside, not once in this entire panel when they are supposedly taking stock of the president's first year in office, was mentioned his basically only two legislative achievements. There's not a lot to remember and talk about. There is the American Rescue Plan, and there is the bipartisan infrastructure deal. Neither of those were mentioned in any way, shape, or form by any of the panelists or by the host. How can you take stock of the president's year and not mention the only two things that he actually got done legislatively? Right.
1: Like, what, what? what is the intention of your conversation if you can't even include those two things? Yes.
0: Yeah. So that was a big miss. And yes, I know there were smaller little bills here and there, but these are the big legislative accomplishments. All right, Naomi, I've talked a lot about that, but that is the biggest discussion I will have of any of these three shows. Do you have a show you wanted to dive into?
1: So I wanted to start off with a brief look at how Jonathan Carl did on This Week, And actually, when I started looking at my notes, it was all COVID related. Specifically, a quick question with Dr. Fauci and Dr. Jaw that you had mentioned in your kind of preview on Fox News Sunday. He was there too. So apparently, he was on at least two shows. So, the first thing about this week is Jonathan Carl talked to Dr. Fauci, and there was a question about the state of testing. Now, President Biden was recently interviewed by David Muir, who is also with ABC News. And there was this kind of whole line of questioning around the state of testing there, too. And Jonathan Carl brings this up and notes that President Biden was pretty defensive about this whole insinuation that testing is real bad. Take a
6: listen. The president seemed to me to be quite defensive when he was asked about that, particularly when David Muir asked him, asked him about the, the testing issue. He said that this has not been a failure. But, I mean, I, I, I've been asking questions about testing, I, so often with you standing uh, uh, with, with the others uh, at, at the podium, uh, since, you know, the beginning of the pandemic, testing was a colossal failure in the early days. And why is it that now, nearly two years in, we still, we still don't have affordable tests widely available to anybody uh, who needs it? I mean, this must frustrate you, I imagine, as well.
7: Well, obviously it does, John. I mean, even with the amount, I mean, if you look at the beginning of the administration, the beginning of the year, there were essentially no rapid point-of-care home tests available. Now there are over nine of them and more coming. The production of them has been rapidly upscaled. And yet, because of the demand that we have, which in some respects, John, is good that we have a high demand, because we should be using testing much more extensively than we have, even in a situation where you have people who are vaccinated or boosted. But the situation where you have such a high demand, a conflation of events, Omicron stirring people to get appropriately concerned and wanting to get tested, as well as the fact of the run on tests during the holiday season. We've obviously got to do better. I mean, I think things will improve greatly. As we get into January, but that doesn't help us today and tomorrow. So you're right. That is something that is of concern.
1: Okay. So if you haven't been listening to polylog that long, you might think like, oh, look, Naomi's going to calm down from last week because Jonathan Carl brought up the crappy state of testing in our country. But if you've been listening to Polylog for a long time, you will know that I will think that this is still crap. And it's for a few reasons.
0: (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I'm looking at the transcript here and I I can kind of guess a few of those.
1: Like, just because you bring up a topic that is very relevant and is very needed doesn't mean you're doing a good job facilitating that conversation. This question is so broad that Dr. Fauci can answer it in any way. And... At no point is there any data or clear examples as to why the testing in this country right now is pathetic. It does not talk about the hours wait that people have to <laughs> get on in the winter, often in very cold places, to try to get this testing in place. It doesn't note that, like we mentioned earlier, Brendan, parents should be testing their school-age children regularly to ensure that our schools stay safe. That is very difficult. The idea that reimbursements is the solution, insurance reimbursements is the solution for our expensive tests that are, the tests that are accessible in this country right now is a joke.
0: The home tests, yeah.
1: Yeah, the home tests. PCR tests are still free. Um,
0: But you might get them in like three or four days.
1: Right. Even two days, even two days is not that helpful. If you are trying to gather safely, you need to be doing rapid tests with anyone who is gathering. That is what public health officials are saying. And it is very hard to do. So literally no examples of any of that. I saw one example of somebody who was trying to get tested, but because they didn't have any symptoms, their insurance wouldn't cover it. And so Oh my God. It's like a $200 freaking PCR test after standing in line to like with sick people for like 2 hours.
0: Like it's just Even though we've known since the very early in the pandemic that like 40% of the people with the virus
1: are asymptomatic.
0: Yes, but can still spread it.
1: Right. So, just over and over again, in so many ways you can zero in on this question with the medical advisor to the president about why we're in the state we're in. To just say, like, I've been asking about testing and it's been bad the last, like, full two years. Like, that is not, like, a probing question. Nor does Jonathan Carl do any research here to try to understand why other countries, other peer economies, are able to give their residents readily accessible at-home test at a fraction of the cost, if not free, and we can't? Or why are some states doing this and some states aren't? There are so many ways to hit this question to Dr. Fauci, and Jonathan Carl took the laziest way, like the most lazy way, to then be able to say like, oh, but I asked him about testing uh, around the holidays. Like, and, and
0: what's the question? I mean, looking at it here, his question is, quote, I mean, this must frustrate you, I imagine, as well. Dot, 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 question well, mark. Well, it's
1: why, you know, to be fair, it's, we still don't have affordable tests widely available to anyone who needs it. I guess, yeah, you're right. It's just, so then Dr. Fauci's able to say it was really bad before, We've, the demand is really high, we're working on it, but, like, those are not all just, like, high, you know, high-level bullshit talking points by the administration,
0: Right. I mean, I was trying to think, like, what is the question that will get to the heart of this? And the heart of it is the administration de-emphasized testing that we as America at some point, our leadership decided testing, uh, whatever, we're going to focus on vaccination. We're going to focus on boosters even though, you know, if we can get our stupid bureaucracy to let us give them out to people. But we're going to focus on the shot and we're not going to focus on testing. We're beyond testing. Testings, uh, it's whatever. It's too much work. Forget it. It's annoying. We're just going to get people vaccinated and that'll be our solution. Like there was clearly a decision made and reinforced by decision after decision after decision to de-emphasize testing and to continue to de-emphasize it. And to instead put a lot of focus and energy into vaccination,
1: right? And the idea that then now testing is necessary is important, and, and people should be adhering to these recommendations when they've been de-emphasized for months,
0: right? And it was clearly a mistake. Who is responsible for that decision, right? I mean, who I, are the people who are responsible for it, and how are we going to make sure we're not going to make that same sort of mistake again, over and over? It's it's just it's.
1: It's maddening that, like, one, the administration feels like, oh, maybe nobody will notice, oh, that we really messed up here. But also, it's maddening that journalists like Jonathan Carl, who have access to Dr. Fauci and other, you know, top public health professionals, can't guide this conversation better. Like, it's just unacceptable on so many levels. Like, if you are mad about <laughs> your holiday plans, getting ruined like yes it sucks that there's another variant absolutely i like wholeheartedly agree but it is like more frustrating that we do not have the public health infrastructure still to be able to guide people through another variant like that like it's nobody's fault well it's, it's i guess I'll take that back. It's some people's fault that there's a new variant, but it's, it's in general, it's nobody's fault that there's a new variant. There, there is people to there are people to blame that we are so behind and be able to handle it, and that's the part that drives me crazy. And journalists like Jonathan Carl should be able to do that at this point. And the other thing is, you don't have to be a freaking science expert. You don't have to be, you know, like a medical reporter to be able to have that conversation. I'm right, not asking right. for the science. Of like how they're produced, <laughs> like I'm asking for just like basic questions about why we're here, so beyond frustrating hearing that, and then I wanted to get to a couple of clips by Dr. Jaw again, he's the Dean of Brown University School of Public Health. He was like Mr. Optimism on the show, that's why he was brought on because he doesn't see omicron as a Doomsday, but I was really surprised just by. I guess, maybe what he was emphasizing and what he like completely ignored and what Jonathan Carl, of course, was incapable of reminding him of. Ooh! This first clip from the Dr. Jaw interview, I actually really agree with, and it's this idea that infection rates is not necessarily helpful for us, and we really need to be looking at hospitalizations and severe disease.
6: Really, since the start of this pandemic, the, the, the figure, the number that we've tracked, uh, in addition to, obviously, hospitalizations and death, but the number that we've tracked has been infections, new cases. How many new cases are? That's been the leading indicator of how bad things are getting or how uh, you know, effectively we're dealing with the pandemic. Are we getting to the point where that, where that indicator really isn't the one that matters? I mean, if new cases, as you said, among the vaccinated are not leading to serious uh, sickness, is it an indicator that we should really be paying so much attention to?
4: Yeah, I think this is the most important part of this moment in this pandemic. We have to do a shift. Look, for two years, infections always preceded hospitalizations, which preceded deaths. So you could look at infections and know what was coming. Even through the Delta wave, that was true because it was largely unvaccinated people who were getting infected. Omicron changes that. This is the shift we've been waiting for in many ways. where we're moving to a phase where if you're vaccinated and particularly if you're boosted, Um, You're going to have you might get an infection, it might be a couple of days of not feeling so great, but you're going to bounce back. That's very different than what we have seen in the past. So I no longer think infections generally should be the major, uh, major uh, metric. Obviously, we can continue to track infections among unvaccinated people because those people will end up in the hospital at the same rate, but we really have to focus on hospitalizations and deaths now.
1: Okay, that all makes sense. I agree. But what is missing in this conversation, and Jonathan Carl doesn't raise it in the follow-up, is that's not what the CDC is doing. The CDC is still pushing out infection numbers as their top kind of, you know, top findings. If you want to find hospitalizations and, and severe disease, it takes quite a bit of extra probing, both at a national level and a state level. And so if we want, he says, we need to be doing this, like, I really wish he was more specific about who should be doing this. Is this the CDC? Or is this, you know, media organizations about what they're asking about? Like, I, I think this is kind of the way it's spoken about in this conversation between Dr. Jaw and John Carl. It seems as if it's like the collective we, like us, societies, constituents, leaders. But there are clear public health organizations and institutions that really need to change their messaging and their findings. So that drives the conversation for the rest of us. And that's not really happening. And so if we want to see this happen, we need to make our public health institutions drive that conversation better.
0: Yeah, there's a policy change that has to happen. And it's not an easy necessarily thing to do because you can add up the infections, you can get that information, and you could add up the hospitalizations. But hospitalizations happen a few weeks after infections happen in an area. So it's understandable why, you know, being in public health, you want to be able to move the numbers when you can, right? And when you can is when the infections are happening, not when the hospitalizations have already happened, right? You want people to change their behavior or change their policy decisions or whatever, or their lockdowns or their masking mandates or whatever, based on data as soon as you can, right? Right. And so what it sounds like, you know, to to go to a, a hospitalization rate to determine what you're doing it's it's a very difficult thing to do, and I think basically what they're going to have to do if they want to have numbers that are actionable data that can be done is they have to kind of do like a scorecard, and it has to be kind of based on, okay, this is the number of infections happening in that your area. This is the vaccination rate in your area, and based on that, we are going to predict that it's going to lead to X number of hospitalizations or or this is the real danger level in your area. You know, I I don't know. It's a very complicated thing.
1: Yeah, it is. But like the lack of doing this has already skewed our understanding of how safe a place is, even from the Delta wave, right? So if you look at Florida, which Governor DeSantis has tried to act like, oh, our infection rates aren't as high as everyone tried to assume it to be. Come to Florida, everything is great is actually really disingenuous because the hospitalization and severe disease is actually quite high in comparison to other places that have a higher vaccination rate because the vaccination rate is still so low in Florida.
0: Well, I I do wanna do a little fact check on that. I mean, the vaccination rate in Florida, if you look at the raw number, it's pretty similar to the vaccination rate in California. The difference, I feel like, that happened in Florida during the Delta wave well, first of all, Florida has you know pockets where it's definitely much lower the vaccination rate in certain counties and regions. But also in Florida, there were basically no masks being worn. There were no efforts being made to slow the spread. And so the spread got a lot higher than it did in other places. It wasn't just vaccination rates that was leading right, to those right. hospitalizations. I, I'm not t-
1: but I'm, again, I'm not trying to talk about infection rates. I'm trying to say hospitalizations were higher in Florida yes. than they were in other parts of right, the country. Right, but you were country.
0: saying vaccinations were so low and that that's not the case necessarily in Florida overall.
1: Well, there's a range of reasons. Either way, you're more likely to die in Florida from COVID than you are likely to die from COVID in other parts of the country. That's what I'm saying.
0: Yeah, you're totally right about the hospitalization rates.
1: So again, I would urge our news organizations to push our public health institutions to be better driving these conversations or driving the messaging about what's going to be the most effective to keep everyone safe
0: and as just a barometer of where we are as a country right
1: right hopefully people have gotten smarter in how we talk about covid i mean we've been doing this for two years for goodness sake brendan what did you have to look at uh for your next show
0: yeah so i also wanted to talk about what happened on state of the union and this was a really it was a I want to say it's a mixed bag, but in, in truth, it there wasn't as much meaningful content for me to surface from this show. So the show actually began with this joint discussion with a Republican and a Democrat from the House of Representatives. We had Democrat Debbie Dingell and Republican Fred Upton, both from the state of Michigan. And this was about kind of talking about these two people who are from separate sides of the aisle they represent the same you know different districts but in the same state and they get along really well they're super good friends and they're an example of people you know crossing the aisle and getting along in a time when there's been you know a lot of overheated rhetoric some shading on the side of violence so to actually have a friendship highlighted is a meaningful thing i suppose but the conversation, it was hard to understand like, exactly what the real purpose of the conversation was, where the questions were going, and also whether these were actually the right people to be asking about it. Here's one clip.
8: So are you connecting the toxic environment on a national political level to what you're seeing on a local level?
9: Yes. Yeah. You know, the House of Representatives is a representative body. It represents the people. Now, what I do want to say is that there are a lot of good people that are worried about our country. So I don't want to be all negative here. Mm-hmm. Um, it, I have people every day that come up from when I'm in the grocery store, when I'm at the farmers market, when I'm in schools. I, you know, Fred and I are both known for being out and about when we're home, and they come up and thank me for doing the job. Or they talk about an issue. We both. We're Fred and Debbie. We don't want to be anything but Fred and Debbie, included for you, Dana. Uh, and people talk to us. But there, there is a lot of fear and hatred and people scared about what's going to happen to themselves. And we need to listen to each other more. And we need to, you know, if you look into Tocqueville, who came over in the early 1800s, and talked about the strength of democracy, it was community. Mm -hmm. And we gotta remind ourselves in community that coming together really is the pillar of our.
0: So, you know, threats are discussed here, different messages that they have received. And I understand it's important to occasionally surface the the people behind the faces that we see on these Sunday shows and the struggles that that they have living this kind of public life. And also what it means for our state of conversation and dialogue in the country. But Bash's question here that we hear is, so are you connecting the toxic environment on a national political level to what you're seeing on a local level? You're treating these representatives, again, like they are subject matter experts in issues of violence and community conversation. And it's like, no, you know, data scientists and Violence prevention experts and people who are actually on the ground studying this topic could have a much more meaningful conversation with you about where our political rhetoric is going or speaking to an actual historian who has studied things like this or people who have covered this in other countries that have dealt with, you know, the rise of political violence. All of that, I feel like, would be a much more meaningful and rich conversation that would get to the heart of the matter more than what two individual political actors have seen on the ground in their day to day life.
1: I mean, I don't really understand why the lived experience about people who are getting death threats or receiving threats of violence is not a valid enough conversation.
0: I think because they're asking, because the questions are asking them to diagnose the problem and diagnose the issue. The victim isn't always the best expert on the assaulter, like why they're being assaulted, what's causing it, how this is a larger issue in the country. These were the types of questions that I feel like were asked. And I don't know, the conversation just felt a little too kumbaya and not hard hitting enough.
1: Okay. I mean, I can understand that point, but I... I don't want to discount hearing from people who are experiencing an issue directly as not, like, valid enough of a conversation.
0: Yeah, that's true. I guess it just—that was a very small portion of the conversation. Later on the episode, Denebash surfaced a really important issue, and that is the health of children in the time of COVID. And not just the health in terms of the effects of the coronavirus, but the effects on our society— And Dana Bash sat down with Vivek Murthy, the Surgeon General.
8: Let me start, first of all, with your advisory, Dr. Murthy. You lay out some really alarming trends. One in five young people report experiencing symptoms of depression. One in four suffer from anxiety. So is the mental health toll of the pandemic an epidemic in its own right?
0: Well, Dana, I'm so concerned about our children because there is uh, an epidemic, if you will, of mental health challenges that they've been facing And it's partly because of the pandemic. We've seen certainly that many children have lost loved ones during this
4: pandemic. 140,000 kids lost a caregiver. We know that their lives have been turned upside down. They haven't been able to see friends as often as they would. And that's taken a toll. It's why we've seen
0: anxiety and depression rates go up among kids. But here's a really important part, Dana. Our kids were struggling long before the pandemic. And the reason we issued this advisory is because there are steps. That we can take we in fact laid out concrete recommendations for 11 sectors uh, including individuals and families government technology companies schools healthcare workers because we all have a role to play in improving the mental health of our children
8: so and when the parents in particular contact you and say what do i do what is your advice if you're a parent watching at home and you say "Mm, i recognize what they're talking about in my kids what is their action plan or what should it be
0: so, I'm not going to get to the answer. The answer is really just conversation and engagement and opening up a conversation that's healthy about mental health. That's the answer of what parents can do. But what was disappointing was Murthy was there to talk about this and to talk about, as he said here, concrete recommendations for 11 sectors, including not just parents, but government, technology companies, schools, healthcare workers, real policy recommendations on a policy show and the only question bash asked him about any of that is what the parents watching can do well that's not this is not as like a good morning America this isn't just about the people watching TV this is a policy show let's talk about policy so that was a real real frustration and a real missed opportunity I mean Murphy is probably as the Surgeon General gonna go on lots of these programs And he's gonna get that same question. What can the people do who are watching the show? This is like the one program possibly that he's gonna be on that is supposedly about policy and there are no real policy questions. And then finally, I have to mention the big conversation at the end, which which was with Huma Abdeen, who was the top aide to Hillary Clinton. Her husband was Anthony Weiner, who went through all those sexting scandals and now Huma Abdeen is out with a new book talking about the aftermath of that story. It was a long conversation. It was a heartfelt conversation where Bash was trying to really connect with Abdeen on their shared experiences of divorce, a conversation we don't often see on the Sunday shows, a conversation that some might dismiss as not being about policy, for example, but a conversation that I thought was extremely important to tell sex scandals take up a lot of airtime in politics and have for decades but that's often from the man's perspective and it's often at the moment of the scandal that's the only time we cover it we don't have retrospectives we don't get to hear it from the perspective of the family members who are involved in these situations or impacted or impacted that's what I mean I should say impacted in these situations And I know this isn't hard-hitting policy discussion, but a lot of our political coverage, as we've been talking about, isn't about that. So why shouldn't we touch base with these situations from time to time? Here is a little bit of that.
10: I was madly in love with him. He was my first love, the first man I was ever with. So to start there, that is why I stayed the first time. And really, a lot of it was motivated by the fact that I was carrying his child. Yeah. And I did not have a choice when my father was taken from me. And so I was going to do everything I could to have my son grow up in a household with two parents. Mm-hmm. And I really try, tried to make that marriage work. By the way, Dana, I believe he did too. We both tried to figure out how mm-hmm. to be in this relationship together and how to you know, be healthy mentally and otherwise. And um, it just didn't, you know, it was so much more complicated than either of us
0: Com- realized. So an important voice to hear, an important conversation to see surfaced since we see it so infrequently. But I do want to say one thing that was missing was any conversation about its impact on the ultimate outcome of the 2016 election. Because if you remember, it was the reopening of the Anthony Weiner case as a result of one of his sexting situations that led to James Comey's reopening of the investigation into Hillary Clinton's emails just a few days before the election, tanking her poll numbers. And we all know what happened from there. No questions on that.
1: Yeah, I mean, so many times family scandals are juicy to kill a campaign, to kill a career. But in terms of the greater impact or what those choices, the consequences of those choices lead to or how people have to live with the ramification of it is barely covered. And so just a lot of respect for Huma for kind of going out there and having this conversation because there's a lot of political wives who don't.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Naomi, tell me what happened on Meet the Press this week.
1: So as I mentioned at the top of the show, Meet the Press did a whole episode around the state of education and race and critical race theory. And it was very interesting, I think, in terms of the voices that were covered in terms of who Chuck Todd and kind of the other NBC News correspondents kind of included in their prepackaged Segments. I think there was a real effort to kind of do this show well. I will say that there was a prepackaged segment that was included in Meet the Press reports. It was, I think it was like 15 or 16 minutes. Wow. Yeah, pretty long where someone went to some area outside of Dallas and looked at a principal who was let go, a black principal in a white school district. And supposedly for critical race theory and stuff. So I think there was like an investment in kind of going there and trying to talk to those people. But I think what this episode showed is how white dominant culture more broadly is so prevalent in how we talk about not just, you know, education and race, but is everywhere in our news coverage. And That was so front and center, specifically in the interview with Nicole Hannah-Jones. Nicole Hannah-Jones, of course, is the creator of the 1619 Project, which was originally done at the New York Times and has since kind of developed into a whole series of resources, including a book. There's um, educational resources. There's just kind of a whole array of, of different resources around the 1619 Project. There were a couple of moments where Nicole Hannah-Jones in the interview itself was calling out assumptions that Chuck Todd was making, assumptions that many, many white journalists do all the time. The first example was in looking at how we were talking about the Virginia gubernatorial race
3: this year. This seems to be a real challenge uh, in an open society is how do we get agreement on this, especially when, you know parents want to have a look, a Virginia governor's race was arguably decided on uh, the strength of how, how influential should parents be on curriculum. How do we do this?
11: Well, I would say the governor's race in Virginia was decided based on the success of a right-wing propaganda campaign that told white parents that they needed to fight against their children being indoctrinated um, as race as being called racist. But that was a propaganda campaign, and there are a lot of black parents in Virginia. There are a lot of Latino parents in Virginia, and they were not being featured in that coverage. And what they wanted for their kids' education, which is more teaching about race, more teaching about the history of racism. Um, seem to have fallen on deaf ears. So I think we should frame that question properly.
1: So I think that's just calling the tea kettle black as it's happening, right? Where she's saying the way we spoke about angry parents in Virginia was the assumption that all parents felt that way when it was white parents who, some white parents who were having a dominating effect on how we were talking about schools in Virginia.
0: Uh, And when you say, effect on how we were talking about it's they were the ones who were asked the questions by reporters correct like reporters decided these are the people i'm going to ask the questions to these are the questions i'm going to ask this is what i'm going to cover because this is what the quote-unquote controversy is
1: right these are the people who are upset like the the anger that had to be covered was white anger right because people just get too scared of black anger There was another moment in the Nicole Hannah-Jones interview that I thought was even more telling. And again, I think Chuck Todd, like he really tries his best here, but he's still like a white guy who's uncomfortable in these conversations. And the mistakes he makes are mistakes that we see so many white journalists do over and over and over again with zero consequence. Take a listen to this second moment where she calls out the belligerent framing of race in schools.
11: This is why we send our children to school and don't homeschool, because these are the professional educators who have the expertise to teach social studies, to teach history, to right. teach science, to teach literature. And I think we should leave that to the educators. Yes, you should have some say. But school is not about simply confirming our worldview. Schools should uh, teach us to question. They should uh, teach us how to think, not what to think. At what age? And I wouldn't want my is there an age restriction to go in your mind? to a school. You know, there's this. About uh, teaching it, what?
3: Teaching sort of, when it, when it comes to teaching our past, you know, there's this, and I, I think it's this coming basically through a racial lens, but there's this, you know, parents are saying, hey, don't, don't make my kid feel guilty. Um, and, you know, and I know a parent of color is going, what are you talking about? You know, I've got to teach reality. When do you do it and how do you do it?
11: Well, I, I think you should just think a little bit about your framing. You said parents and then you said parents of color. So the right. white, white parents silent. and parents of and color, white, You're, you know, right. fair, white parents fair point. they yeah. are not representing. As a matter of fact, white parents are representing fewer than half of all public school parents. Right. And yet they have an outsized voice in this debate. Uh, I have a child who. Just by watching the news when she was eight years old, she saw Laquan McDonald, a teenager in Chicago, get shot 16 times by police on CBS in the morning show. And she asked me, why did, that, why did they kill that boy? So I can't wait to have these conversations with my child. Wow. And I don't think that uh, we should be asking what is, what is the appropriate age. I think we should be asking... What are the appropriate conversations at that age? But our children are being raised in a racialized society. They are noticing things. They have questions. And I don't think teaching an accurate rendering of history is about making white children feel guilty. I don't know an educator. I, I, I've been covering education for two decades. I've never seen a, a teacher of any race tell a white child you are responsible for what happened in the past. Um, I just don't think that that's happening. And even all of the people who have claimed that that has happened have not been able to produce a shred of evidence that that's true. I think some students who are white probably yeah. walk away from some of these lessons feeling very uncomfortable, as we should. We should be uncomfortable uh, with the hard parts of our past. And a master educator knows how to give those lessons without making students internalize this this feelings of of racism.
1: So just an extremely powerful moment here where chuck todd says parents and then says parents of color and makes that distinction right as if those are separate parents but when your assumption of
0: regular parents and then there's the parents of color
1: right when the dominant group of parents are white and you're not calling them white you're otherizing the parents of color or making it seem as if they are those those concerns have like differing value systems, right? Where they're all parents. They're all parents with kids in the school system and they might have different priorities and different values. But when you're saying like parents feel this and parents of color feel that when you're like, well, I think I need to be need to be worried about that first like main group, right? The main group must be
0: like the priority group and And we we do this with race all the time. Well, and as she points out, if you're going to have a main group that includes all parents, the majority of them are parents of color. Right.
1: Exactly. Like They don't represent the majority of of students in our education system anymore. So just a masterclass of just kind of being a very active listener here by Nicole Nicole Hannah-Jones and calling it out when we see it, right? And... I think so many times people don't even realize that the way institutional racism has categorized things in our brain and we just kind of use that those same assumptions and have ill intended conversations and it's and it's just beyond frustrating because sometimes then the people who see the world differently are just assumed to be crazy or assumed to be making something up maybe it's just dominant white culture That people can't seem to want to (laughs) shake their grip of.
0: Yeah, I'm wondering in all of this, was there any discussion of other models for these types of conversations? Like what happened in South Africa, for instance?
1: No, the conversation throughout the whole show was really centered around, I mean... I just want to say 1619 Project was just the interview with Nicole Hannah-Jones. The rest of the segments were around critical race theory and how really critical race theory isn't really being taught in schools. But it's the conversations around diversity, equity and inclusion that people are labeling as CRT when it's really not. And the whole idea around, like, what should be covered in our American history classes Mm -hmm, and what are, you know, what do we romanticize and what don't we? And there was this kind of whole bit around, like, subjective. Like, somebody said, like, we need to teach, like, objective history. And Jelani Cobb, a writer with The New Yorker and an actual historian, was like, there's no such thing as objective history. Like, history, by its very definition, is subjective. And we choose, like, what to focus on.
0: And... Hmm. Sounds like journalism <laughs> to me. <laughs> journalism is also something that people have to choose what to focus
1: Exactly. On. And so it, it wasn't necessarily about kind of how we look at race in other parts of the world. But like, what does it look like currently in schools and where are people where are school districts struggling and dropping the ball or kind of going a particular way and how parents and teachers are reacting to that?
0: Yeah, I mean, it's it's such a fascinating issue and story. I mean, certainly there, there's this political term that has been used and exploited called critical race theory by one party over another. But historically, it is an interesting situation to be in. And that's where I was thinking of South Africa, where there was a black African majority that was subjugated for years by a white minority. Then that black majority... Took power and control, and clearly would need to coexist with that white minority and also teach the history of that subjugation to their students and what happened in their country. We're now reaching a period where the history of subjugation of African Americans and other peoples of color within our country is finally going to be told more fully than it ever was before. And that just so happens to be a period that is. Not surprisingly coinciding with people of color growing in size in our country and now representing the majority of students within our school system, how is that white minority of students and their parents reacting to the truths being told and how that truth is being told in a different way than they are comfortable with or has been told in the past? I feel like there's a parallel there to learn from.
1: Well, yeah, and Zero surprise that it's happening a few years later after we had a black president and an immediate white president who was really resentful of that. (laughs) So, you know, just kind of the broader universe of how we are diving into this conversation.
0: Requires a lot of nuance.
1: Lots of nuance and a lot of different voices. I think there were, I think Nicole Hannah-Jones was the only like black woman. I don't think there was many Latinos. Um, You do a whole thing on like... (laughs) indigenous education in this country and like <laughs> just the complete insulting framing of colonialism in this country like there's just so many ways you could go about it but either way i do think this was a great sneak peek into meet the press reports and i has me thinking i need to kind of spend more time with meet the, meet the press reports to kind of do those deeper dives
0: it's on peacock
1: yeah, apparently we're doing ads now for Peacock. Yeah, go, go check it out.
0: Brendan, what was the last show you looked at? I looked at Face the Nation, hosted by Margaret Brennan, as usual. And in this episode, there was a large kind of pre-taped interview that Margaret Brennan had done last week and had promoted on various properties within CBS in various ways, little clips and bits coming out. And that is her interview with Kamala Harris, vice president of the United States. And there was something you said early on about when we were talking about the Omicron variant and being, you know, whose fault is it? Well, that exact question was asked of Kamala Harris. Here's Harris's answer, which I thought was pretty good, actually.
10: Is it the fault of the unvaccinated? I don't think this is a moment to talk about fault. It it is no one's fault that that this virus hit our shores or hit the world. I would not blame it on anyone in that way. But it is more about individual power and responsibility. And it's about the the decisions that everyone has the choice to make, no doubt. Mm -hmm. But it is clear that everyone has the ability to make a choice to save their lives and to prevent hospitalization. If they get vaccinated and if they get the booster. And so I urge people to do that.
0: So I think this is an important message to to push out there and to not vilify people who are unvaccinated, because ultimately we need to protect them and their lives as well. And we need to encourage them to seek medical help, whether that's through a vaccine proactively, that's the best way, or uh, retroactively through Paxlovid, you know, the the pill that Pfizer has put out or hospital, you know, hospital care. So I do appreciate that. Now, listening to it after I crowned it as a great answer, I'm like, well, actually, we can probably put our fingers on a lot of people who are at fault for making bad decisions in many different ways for it being as bad as it was. Uh, I do want to note there was a fact that I heard from one of the shows today. I don't remember exactly which one it was, but that is that They estimate a million lives in America have been saved by the vaccine. So that is pretty dramatic and important. Elsewhere in this interview, Margaret Brennan asked some really important questions and really direct questions that should be asked of Harris and Biden.
10: No question. Voting rights lead to every other right, Mm -hmm. every other right. And so we need to prioritize it as a nation. I think it's really important that in this conversation about what's happening in Washington DC on the issue of voting that we not lose sight of the fact that there is one whole group of people half of the United States Senate who are refusing to even debate this issue. But to that point you were just in the Senate and and the
12: president spent decades there how come you can't pull someone across the aisle on this or manage
10: Joe Manchin within your own party? We are not going to give up on these issues. But you're right, it's a 50-50 Senate. It's a 50-50 Senate. And so, but it has to be a combination of us as an administration, but also everyone weighing in. And I'm Mm -hmm. glad we're having this conversation. I think we have to continue to elevate the conversation about voting rights. Given the daily grind that people are facing, this may not feel like an immediate or urgent matter, when in fact it is. And the more we have the opportunity to talk about it, the more I think people will see. yeah, I don't want an America of Mm -hmm. the future for my kids to be an America where we are are, are, are suppressing the right of the American people to vote.
0: So there you heard the answer, but I really wanted to highlight the question because it is very important to call out Biden and Harris for their, like, Senate cred. You... People were just there in the Senate. You should like, it's not like, oh, there's nobody in the administration who knows about the Senate. You know, there's someone there like Trump who's never served in Congress, or there's someone there like George W. Bush, who was a governor. No, you, you two were in the Senate. You're experts on the Senate. Your problem is the Senate. Your failure now is in the Senate. Let's call you out on that a little bit. You should be called out. And what are you doing about it? Now, Harris just says, oh, we're going to keep working. We're going to keep working. Blah, blah, blah. There's no real detail there. Uh, And that's kind of like the, the theme of the interview, honestly. An answer that could be about anything from Kamala Harris.
12: But I know as a candidate, you pledged to protect the gains that were made for Afghan women. Yes. Yeah. And I feel very strongly about that. Many of those Afghan women are not in school today because the Taliban is in control
10: which is why we are working through the U.N. and um, doing what we need to do through our friends to provide humanitarian assistance bypassing um, the Taliban to make sure that we are supporting women and girls there. One of our big issues in terms of any conversations with the Taliban is exactly this point, which is the condition, the status, and the treatment of women and girls, including for girls, access to education.
0: Okay, so this answer isn't quite so bad because she does get a little bit, the vice president, into specifics about what's being done. But come on, you're being called out on not standing up to your pledge. And your answer is, and I still feel very strongly about that. Well, do you feel strongly, like clearly not strongly enough because you went back on your pledge. Or do you feel strongly that you're not committed? Like, I don't understand... (laughs) strongly (sighs) I don't know what does feel strongly mean to you in terms of like actual execution and how should we feel about all the other things you're saying you feel strongly about like voting rights or all these other things you know covid You, you say you feel strongly about a lot of these issues do you feel strongly in the same way as you felt about afghan women and girls I don't know I feel like I've heard all these things before from the vice president before she was vice president and we did not rate her very highly in our debate special debate episodes So that was that, a handful of strong questions from Margaret Brennan. Finally, there was the Correspondence Roundtable, which unfortunately was not as good this year as it has been in the past. I loved the array of correspondence that they had to kind of reflect on the year and also look forwards into the new year. But oh my gosh, this was like a lesson in blaming the politicians for the conversation that you, the media, have decided will be the conversation rather than talking about the actual policies at issue. Here is exhibit A. And the first voice you'll hear is Nicole Killian, then you'll hear Margaret Brennan, then Ed O'Keefe. And they're talking about the Build Back Better bill that has been stalled again by Joe Manchin.
1: So while right now it looks like Democrats are kind of at this
10: stalemate, uh, again, I think you will see Democratic leadership really try to prod him over these next couple of weeks to get on board.
12: But, doesn't this hurt Democrats uh, the longer this drags on?
13: I think what's hurting them more than anything is the focus on the process of it all, which they themselves have allowed to be the focus by virtue of the arguments they've had in public, the incredible disagreements that they can't seem to get over, and the fact that the president uh, engages behind the scenes but hasn't done necessarily as much publicly to try to get the warring factions of his party together to say, let's just get
0: a deal. So Ed O'Keefe says, His answer here is what's hurting Democrats is the focus on the process, which the Democrats have allowed to be the focus. The Democrats have been on the Sunday shows time and time again, trying to talk about the bill and the policies in the bill. I mean, every single time they have been on, it has been about the bill and all the questions have been about the numbers and the budgets, and the process. That's what the questions have all been about, is the process. And now you're saying the Democrats have allowed that to be the focus because they've had arguments in public? I, I don't know. It's just...
1: <sighs> I think I don't want to let Democrats off the hook here because they have been really bad in their messaging of their own priority legislation. But I do hear what you're saying, Brennan, in terms of if you want to have a better conversation about this bill, like have it when they're on your show. And when they mess up or they're not ready for those conversations or questions like that, that reflects on them, not on the journalist. And the continual focus on the process or kind of the total budget number, or kind of the, the dollar figure that both journalists and proponents of the bill lean on, it's hard to blame the Democrats, I guess, when journalists have the easier conversation.
0: Yeah, I think what I think what I'm really I agree that the Democrats should not be off the hook for failing on this and talking about it as long as they did and then not actually getting it past the line. But what I really dislike about this answer and this conversation is that the word Media or reporters or the news or they are not represented in this answer at all, right? It's like the news media is not even here. Like the reporter who's speaking these words is not even recognizing that the media made any choices whatsoever in what to cover, that this is all just what the Democrats have done and they have allowed this to happen. And it's like, no, the media has agency. You, as a reporter, at O'Keefe, have agency. You, Margaret Brennan, asking the question, have agency. You have decided what questions to ask, what people to book, what conversations to have, where to lead the conversations. All of these things have been, like you have had a role in it. So don't pretend that like, you're gonna have a conversation about what has been covered in the media and not talk about the media, and not talk about your role. It's perfectly fine to say, you know, the Democrats are going to be hurt by this, by failing to pass this legislation, right, in, in the election. But to say you're going to talk about what was covered and not talk about the people doing the covering is disingenuous. Here's exhibit B. You'll hear Margaret Brennan ask the question and Ed O'Keefe provide the answer. Of
12: course. <laughs> but Ed, um, you know, it is the Federal Reserve's job to control inflation, let's be clear here. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't matter. Commander-in-Chief will get the blame for it if uh, the spending continues to spike. Do you, does the White House believe that the price spikes are actually a short-term issue?
13: Oh, well, they thought that certainly at the end of the summer into the fall. But I think if you look at what the Fed has said since, uh, they now understand that this is going to continue further into next year. There's going to be this kind of, you know, once-in-a-lifetime perhaps economic disruption that leads to a long and painful and expensive reshuffling. And when things are bad economically, they take it out on those in charge, and that's Democrats. So you add that plus the historic nature of a midterm where the party in power usually loses seats anyway, right. and they know they could be in for a real shellacking.
0: All right, so we have complained about this before, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it. But what Margaret Brennan does here is like nails on a chalkboard to me. She literally says... We know whose job it is, that it's not the White House's job. It's the Federal Reserve's job to control inflation. But it doesn't matter. The commander-in-chief will get the blame. So let's talk about how much blame he's going to get. What? You are perpetuating the idea that it is Biden's fault, that it is the administration's fault, when you know for a fact they don't have control over it. And you're just going to continue in that perpetuation. It is, it is just... It is just totally unacceptable. Totally unacceptable. I'm beyond words at how unacceptable this is. And then Ed O'Keefe in his answer conflates the White House with the Fed itself as if they are the same thing. She asks, does the White House believe the price spikes are actually a short-term issue? Ed O'Keefe's answer is, well, they, assuming he's talking about the White House, they thought that certainly at the end of the summer into the fall, but I think if you look at what the Fed has said since, They now understand this is going to continue further into next year. Who's the they in that sentence? Is it the same they of the White House or the they of the Fed? Or are they the same thing? Sounds like the same thing to me when they were asked about in the same sort of question. And now again, we are conflating these two things as if they both are the same. (sighs) I hate it, Naomi. I hate it. I hate it. I hate it. This does not engender a better understanding in the audience of what the forces are that are at play in our government right now.
1: Yeah, and I think that is a huge, huge missed opportunity in particular because there are, there, there are so many conversations and coverage and genuine effects of this slow re- economic recovery that by the, the, the sloppiness, I guess I could say, of, of these clips that you're showing, Brendan, aren't <laughs> going to help at all.
0: Exactly. And it all plays into, once again, this crowning of the White House and whoever the president is with being the focus of every conversation on these Sunday shows. It's all about the White House. It's all about what the president's doing or not doing, up or down. Everything's on their shoulders. Everything's their responsibility. Everything's within their power, even when it's not within their power, even when we say it's not within their power. And every political force or national crisis or incident is all seen through the lens of what this means for the president. God forbid we should care about the people. So that's my, what I would hope would be a New Year's resolution for all these shows. That's what we can get to here, is stop thinking that the world of politics begins and ends with the White House. Naomi, what might be one of your New Year's resolutions for the shows, if you could have one?
1: I wish the shows had clear objectives for their interviews and less of a, ooh, 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 let's get this person to come on. And less of a wanting to get an exclusive interview that no one is talking, you know, getting the Fed chair and no one else is talking in the Fed chair, or talking to Yellen or whatever. Like, what is your goal?
0: Or well, the vice president.
1: Right. Like, what is the goal of that interview? And having all of your questions really drive at that so that way your viewers can have better judgment as to how these leaders are doing.
0: I would make for a very nice year of Sunday shows and we will just hope for it because that year will be here before our next episode of Polylog.
1: Yeah. That's what we're going to see next
0: week. So we will wish you all a happy new year. We will be on the other side covering the Sunday shows as usual and being forever hopeful for a better year ahead.
1: Yes. Hopeful. That is the way people describe me. Absolutely. <laughs> I think for the end of the year, we'll just have our resolutions count as our dialogue challenge yes. because we're talking about resolutions this year anyway. Let's be, or this week anyway. Let's be real. So I hope you find a journalism or a media resolution of your own. If you want to share them with us, you're welcome to. You can do it at by email at podcast at You can tweet at me at Sodonaomi underscore.
0: You can tweet at me at Beast Title and you can tweet at the show at Polylogcast. Thanks everyone and we will talk to you in the new year twenty twenty two. Goodbye. Be safe. Bye.